0: Well, today on The Beacon Broadcast, we're going to continue taking our break, or I should say taking a break, from our study in John chapter 17, which we will return to, Lord willing, next week. But this being a holiday season and also being on the threshold of a new year, I thought it might be helpful to look at another passage of Scripture and be reminded of how wonderfully and graciously God uses his people to serve him, even though we don't deserve the privilege of serving him, and yet how wonderfully God allows us that very privilege. And so I'm going to be looking today at the opening verses of the Gospel of Mark. Mark is a gospel that emphasizes the servanthood of Jesus, but it does more than that It highlights the servanthood of the author, the human author of this gospel, namely John Mark. And when we think about his background and his record of service and his failures and his restoration, we should all be very encouraged about what God did in his life and what God has done in many, many other lives and what God can do in your life and in mine as well. So thank you for joining me on this December 31 edition of the Beacon Broadcast, and thank you for your financial support, which makes it possible for us to teach God's Word week after week on this station. Listen to the opening verses of the Gospel according to Mark. In the beginning, or rather the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the Prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark does not begin his gospel account with the birth of Christ, as do Matthew and Luke, but he begins the beginning of his gospel with the introduction of Christ's earthly service, his public ministry, which began around age 30 and was introduced by the forerunner of Christ, namely John the Baptist. Each of the Gospels begins their account of the life and ministry of Christ in a different way. Matthew has that wonderful and familiar account of the birth of Christ after a rather extensive genealogy in the beginning of chapter 1 but then it goes on to tell us about the birth of Christ from the standpoint of Joseph the betrothed husband of Mary who was astonished and was 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 so shocked and disappointed when he found out that his bride who he had every reason to believe was a virgin was expecting a child. And of course, she was indeed a virgin, and she was expecting a child. And that's the only time in the history of the world that that has actually happened. So Matthew begins his account at the beginning of the life of Christ, at the conception of Christ, and starts by telling us how this conception came about and assuring us that it came about by way of a virgin birth and the Father of Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit, not any human man. Luke likewise opens his account by telling us another angle, another perspective on the birth of Jesus, the familiar Christmas story. The birth in the manger, the shepherds in the field, the angels from on high, the So many things that take place at the early stage of the life of Christ are found. And when you combine those two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, you get a really wonderful and full picture of the details of the birth of Christ. John, the fourth Gospel, begins even before the conception of Christ. He goes clear back into eternity. In the beginning was the Word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, and so forth. And then finally, mentioning the Incarnation, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. A wonderful beginning in John's Gospel that precedes the beginning, of Matthew and Luke. But when we come to the Gospel of Mark, the one we're looking at today, we find that he begins actually with the ministry of John the Baptist, the prophesied forerunner of Jesus Christ. But before we consider that beginning, that servanthood, the faithful service of John the Baptist, who prepared the way for the coming of Christ, let's consider even before that the wonderful servanthood and restoration of the human author of this gospel, namely Mark, John Mark. John Mark is a wonderful example of how servants of Christ who fail in their service can be restored and placed in service once again. John Mark started with a pretty impressive beginning. You go find that in the book of Luke, or rather the book of Acts, (laughs) written by Luke. Uh, Luke is the first book written by Dr. Luke, the beloved physician. Acts is the second book. Luke was quite the historian. And he tells us about the beginning service of John Mark. Uh, It actually... Goes clear back to a an explanation of who he was when we find out that Peter in John chapter or rather Acts chapter twelve, released from prison, went to a prayer meeting where, in the home of Mary the mother of Mark. Acts twelve twelve. So when he had considered this, Peter considered what had taken place in releasing him from prison. I think he was still in a little bit of a daze from what had taken place. But when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Well, that isn't a lot of detail, but it certainly tells us something about the wonderful home from which John Mark sprang. Can you imagine? living in the house where people were praying for Peter's release when Peter showed up and knocked on the door. Undoubtedly, young John was there. Furthermore, we see something of his desire to serve. We read, for example, of the first missionary team, namely Saul, as he was called in those days. His name was quickly changed to Paul in this account in Acts chapter 13, but he starts out as Saul and Barnabas, leading elders in the church at Antioch of Syria, and it says, when they arrived in Salamis, after having been sent out by the church to missionary service, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and then this, almost a passing comment, but such an important one, they also had John as their assistant. And so we learn for the first time that when Paul and Barnabas left Antioch, Syria, for their missionary service, they took with them a young man by the name of John Mark, who evidently had a desire to serve, had volunteered to serve, I would take it. We don't really know that fact. It's possible that Paul or Barnabas came to him and said, would you consider this? And he thought about it and said, yes, but it's also possible that he heard that they were planning to go, and he said, would you consider taking me? I'd like to go with you. I'd like to volunteer. But in any case, however it was, he became attached to that first missionary team. He failed his commitment and his assignment, and he has accepted responsibility very shamefully. Reading a little bit further on in Acts chapter 13, it says, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, here it is again, here here he is again, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. And we know that it was not an honorable departure because Paul was adamant in his unwillingness to take him again, on the second missionary journey, one who had failed so miserably to fulfill his commitment on the first missionary journey. In other words, though we don't know exactly what John said was his reason for departure, we do know for certain that he had not become ill and therefore had a legitimate reason to depart. There was not some kind of crisis at home that made it a more godly decision to return to his home and to to the side of his mother at this time of crisis than to continue with the missionary team. Nope. Every indication is he just got homesick. And he dropped out. And for Paul, that was a shameful and I'm, I'm tempted to say inexcusable failure. It certainly was it certainly was inexcusable to take him again so soon after his first failure, whereas on the other hand, Barnabas said, no, he's a good boy. It was a a momentary lapse. It won't happen again. Of course, Barnabas was the uncle of John Mark. He was a a blood relative, and so he saw things a little bit differently. He had a, a kinder disposition. I think Barnabas was a little bit blinded by his relationship his his family relationship with John Mark. Paul probably had it more correct, but he could have been blinded by a an overly strict viewpoint of the situation. but whatever it was, John Mark failed. John Mark dropped out and he was rejected by Paul on on the consideration for the second missionary journey, and that's when Paul, taking Silas, Paul and Barnabas split over that. That was a such a big issue that Paul and Barnabas were no longer able to work together. And so Barnabas went his way, continued his missions work, and took John Mark with him, and Paul chose Silas, another companion, to go with him, and when they got back to Galatia, they found another young promising man by the name of Timothy, who joined their team and, in essence, replaced the service that John Mark had rendered on the first missionary journey. But the wonderful thing is that John Mark, who had failed, was restored to usefulness, and we read these words in Colossians 4.10. Paul, writing now, Paul, the one who would not let him go on the second missionary journey, writes in Colossians 4.10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he, that is John Mark, comes to you, welcome him. My translation says he was his cousin, but the Greek relationship is a little less um, definite than our understanding of the word cousin, and it's more likely he was John Mark's nephew rather than cousin, but he could have been a cousin. But at any rate, he was a relative of Barnabas. He was not allowed to go with Paul on the second missionary journey, and yet over the passing of time, in serving the Lord, alongside his relative Barnabas, he proved himself to be dependable. He stayed steady and faithful for many, many, many years, and eventually won over the Apostle Paul, so that Paul recognized him as a faithful, dependable, godly servant of Christ. It is a remarkable recovery. He's mentioned again in Second Timothy 4:11. It is a remarkable recovery. And so great was his recovery that, and here we get back to where we started in Mark chapter 1, so great great was his recovery and restoration to service that he was chosen by the Holy Spirit of God to write one of the books in our Bible. He was the human author of an inspired gospel. Now, you don't get much higher in the service of God than that. And so the question is, what produced this restoration to usefulness in the life of John Mark? And it had to be, number one, a concerned brother in Christ, namely Barnabas, who did take him on the second missionary journey, and Barnabas, who was correct that John Mark was a good young man, a committed Christian— His lapse had been regrettable, but it was momentary. It would not happen again. It did not happen again. Barnabas was right. And so a concerned Christian was used by God to restore John Mark to usefulness. But clearly, John Mark had worked within him by the Spirit of God a renewed determination to serve the Lord, an unwavering dedication to Christ, a commitment to do so. And and what I'm saying is this. There was, of course, a period of testing before he was going to be acknowledged as a faithful and useful servant by the Apostle Paul. There was a period of testing, longer now, this testing period, than his initial period of of, um, inauguration into the service, missionary service of Christ, because it takes, listen to me now, if you fail, like John Mark failed, or in some similar way, failed the people of God, and those that you had been trusted with the servants of Christ, some some responsibility in some area. Just know that it's going to take longer and ought to take longer to regain a place of usefulness once lost than to gain one in the first place. Are you hearing me? Some of you are very um, determined that you're going to return to a place of service after failure, and some of you are very unhappy with other Christians that aren't ready to accept you as a restored servant of Christ immediately. And you have to understand there's a difference between forgiveness and restoration. There's a difference between forgiveness and earning the label of trustworthy and Learning, earning the confidence of people that you have failed. This is true in every area. I'm talking to some who've stumbled badly in your marriage and, and failed your marriage partner, and you've acknowledged it, you have confessed it, you have you, whatever it was that, that caused that breach, you have sought the forgiveness of your mate, and you desire to be restored. And it very well may be that the marriage has not broken up. In some cases, it may break up. I've seen cases like that where marriages actually were broken by divorce, and then, and this doesn't happen very often, but then later on, those two people came back and were remarried after a significant period of testing and observation. And that's what I'm getting you to, trying to get you to see. If you have failed, you need to understand that the proving that you have truly been restored takes longer than it took to to qualify you for your position of of service or your position of of um, marriage or whatever it is we're talking about, but your original position came more quickly, and usually does come more quickly, than your restored position will be. There is a difference between forgiveness and restoration. Forgiveness is extended upon acknowledgment of wrong and request for forgiveness. A true Christian will forgive those who acknowledge that they have sinned and will ask for forgiveness. But simply because you have been forgiven doesn't mean that you deserve to be restored immediately or that it would even be right for the person against whom you have sinned to trust you immediately. You've got to prove yourself over time. The trust you have violated takes longer to regain The confidence that you have lost takes longer to rebuild than the original relationship required, but it is possible, and that's the point. If you will be humble, if you will be faithful, if you will be patient, if you will be willing to serve in a lesser place, lesser position than you had before— and, and just wait and, and, and trust the Lord. Wait upon God. If God wants to restore you to your former position of usefulness, and in some cases that may be possible, in other cases it may not, in some pa- cases that might be appropriate and desirable, and in some cases it may not, and that's the point, you need to leave that to God. You're not the one that makes that decision. You have to wait on God to lay it upon the hearts of others to become convinced that you're ready for that. But John did that. John did that. He was willing to serve humbly with an unwavering commitment, an unwavering faith in God, looking to God, not men, for his place of restoration, and he was restored, he was valued, he was trusted, he was now given this incredible opportunity to take up his pen and, under the guidance and guardianship and inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, to write the second gospel in the New Testament. What an amazing record! What an amazing lesson, what an amazing occasion of a fallen brother being restored, and some of you are in the same position, and I'm trying to tell you, dear friend, if you are truly repentant and truly humble, and if you are truly repentant, you will be humble, you will not be demanding, you've got to restore me, you've got to forgive me, you've got to restore me, you've got to trust me, you've got to let me go back to it. I re- I expect that that's what what god would have you do you're not in the position to make those decisions but if you'll be patient and quiet and humble and you will be if you're truly repentant you know one of the one of the most obvious marks that that the professed repentance is suspect is your unwillingness to be patient and to wait for god to restore you in his time according to his timetable according to His testing of you over time, rather than you expecting it and demanding it immediately. It's a it's a test of your repentance, it's a test of your sincerity, it's a test of your true servanthood if you're willing to wait on God. But here is Mark penning this this gospel, the gospel of Mark is a gospel of service. Each gospel has its own unique perspective. Matthew is the gospel of the sovereignty of Jesus. Jesus is the king, the king of the Jews. Luke is the gospel of his humanity, a special emphasis upon his humanity, upon his incarnation. John is the gospel of his eternality. He is more than a man. He is the man Christ Jesus, he is a human, 100% human, for he took upon him the nature of man, but he's more than that. He is eternal deity, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and so forth. But Mark is the gospel of the suffering servant, emphasizing the service of Jesus Christ, his lowly service. Mark 10.45 quotes, Jesus is saying, for the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. And the service of Christ is emphasized by Mark, who himself failed in his service and then was restored to service. Jesus did not fail in his service, but Mark has a special place in his heart for servanthood, a special appreciation for the fact that he was allowed to return to a position of servitude. A lowly servant. There are a lot of Christians that are too proud for that. They're too they're not willing to do that. I'd be willing to serve the Lord if I had a position of honor, a position of authority, a position that was recognized as being a high and important position, but you're asking me to do this? Or, or, Lord, you have opened up a door for a place of service that is so lonely? I'm not going to do that. Then you're not ready to do anything, dear friend. Mark was ready to do that. He he was ready to just simply be an errand boy, a servant, a gopher, you might say, for others who were preaching the gospel. And look how God used him. Mark is the shortest gospel of the four. Service doesn't require as many words as other things do. Mark is the simplest gospel of the four. Servants don't require a lot of polish to carry out their work. Just get in there and do your job. And so, Mark, the restored servant, introduces his gospel with John, the prophesied servant, the forerunner of Christ. John the Baptist, who is the advance team, you might say, for the coming of Christ. And therefore, Mark writes in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in. The prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your faith. That, of course, is Isaiah prophesying about the messenger, John the Baptist. Who will prepare your way before you? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Yes, indeed. Actually, some of this comes from Malachi chapter 3, and some of it comes from Isaiah chapter 40. And Mark picks up these quotations, again guided by the Holy Spirit of God, and introduces the coming of Jesus Christ, not with his birth in the womb of the Virgin Mary, not with his cradle in the manger, and the details that we are, we love so much this time of year as we are celebrating Christmas, the birthday of Christ, but with this ministry of a forerunning servant, a forerunner servant, who prepared the way for the coming of Christ, the humble, lowly John the Baptist, who said, he must increase, but I must decrease, who said, I'm not worthy to untie the shoelaces of this man. That's the attitude. That's the servant heart. That's what God blesses and honors. Is that the heart you have? That's the heart that John Mark had after he was restored. That's the heart that John the Baptist had and he was used of God so greatly. That's the heart that God looks for in those who would serve him fruitfully and effectively. Ask God to give you a heart like that and see how God will use you in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the threshold of a new year, determined to become a servant of Christ. And we'll gather together again, Lord willing, next week in the new year. Until then, this is Greg Barkman, Bible teacher on the Beacon broadcast, saying, Good day. May God give you his eternal peace.